Welcome to the Speaks Exchange podcast with your host, Donald Taylor. As a renowned learning and development industry expert, as well as chairman of the Learning and Performance Institute, Donald sits down with experts from around the globe to talk business communication, learning technology, language, digital transformation, and engaging, upskilling, and reskilling your organization. This podcast is brought to you by Speaks, the first intelligent language learning platform for the digital workplace. Listen in and you might learn a thing or two. Hi, this is the Speaks Exchange podcast with me, Donald Taylor. On today's episode is Miriam Nealon, author of Evidence-Informed Learning Design with Paul Kirshner. The book is published by Kogan Page, due out in February 2020. Also the author with Paul of Three Star Learning Experiences. Great blog. Miriam, lots to talk about in that book title and plenty more as well. But firstly, can you just introduce yourself? Where are you currently working and tell us what you're doing there? So I currently work for Accenture and that's where I want to make my first disclaimer uh, right away (laughs) is all views are my own. Um, So my role has two titles. Uh, I'm a learning experience design lead and uh, I'm also called a learning advisory manager. Um, And I've been in that role for two years. My role is global. I work with internal clients. Um, I am responsible for, let's say, the strategic definition of learning experience. Well, okay, that is a great thing to say because we're going to be talking, I hope, a lot about learning experiences and sounds like you're the woman to be speaking to. You haven't always been at Accenture very quickly. Where were you before that? Because it's an interested and varied background and how has that informed your current thinking? Well, so I started my career as a speech therapist, working with adults with aphasia and children with neurological disorders. So I have a master's in psycholinguistics, but then after five years or so, I quit and I started uh, studying learning sciences. I moved to Mexico at the same time. And since then, I, so I lived in Mexico for a while, lived in the US. So that's kind of like where my career as a learning professional started. Variety of jobs in the learning field, you know, instructional design, e-learning development. My last job was more as an applied researcher. And now, as I said, my current role is, is more strategic. I guess the red thread throughout my career is that I'm just, I've always been passionate about using scientific research to uh, make informed decisions in everything that I do. Yeah. I always asked a lot of why questions. Um, I'm totally getting that. I'm totally getting that, Miriam, that sense that you've come from this strong scientific background, the, the, the masters that you had, the focus on really understanding the science behind it, perhaps not a trait that is widely enough spread in learning and development. Perhaps we'll come on to that later on let's talk about this book of yours for a second well we can't talk about the book right now we're talking in august the book comes out in 2020 in february but we have got the title to look at evidence informed learning design now come on learning design you can't design learning it's something that happens in people's heads talk me through that please oh you can't design it oh i didn't know that no i'm just (laughs) kidding uh (laughs) of course you can design learning i mean we can facilitate it we can support it right we can design learning experiences we can design learning programs whatever you want to call it so yes we are aware of that uh we still put it in the title in the book itself we talk more about learning experiences but this is the thing when we were thinking about the title for the book but also 
overall what are we gonna call ourselves even like the roles it just makes me realize that I think it's a great sign of the challenge that we have in the learning field I feel that we're talking about things that shouldn't be important like who are we what are we doing yet things aren't clearly defined so Paul and I were having debates about this like what are we instructional designers learning designers learning architects training designers so we call ourselves learning professionals in the book to just get it out of the way same with the learning design instructional design learning experience design we we just didn't know really what to use so the reason that it title is learning design is because it's shorter than learning experience design but i know that using the word experience is going to cause debate as well because people define that in different ways as well some people would say well you're not talking about the whole emotional part of learning and you know the immersive <laughs> blah 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 so yes I don't know. Okay, uh, we so, just... so look, this is this actually epitomizes the learning and development field at the moment. We're probably, I don't know, four or five minutes into our podcast and we haven't even got past the first four words, evidence informed. Yes. Time. So let's put that to one side. But I'd still like to look at the title of your blog just very quickly. Three star learning experiences on, on a scale of what? I mean, if it's a scale of one to five, that's a pretty mediocre learning experience. I'm assuming it's a one, two, three star, like a, like a Michelin restaurant. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So it's about it's about it's actually um, something that, that Paul uses a lot. It's about the, the comparison with the cook who, who uses like tools, techniques and ingredients and he needs all three of them to cook the best dish ever. And as learning experience designers or learning professionals, we need to do the same thing. We need a kit with tools, techniques, and ingredients to design the best learning experiences. I like that. I buy it. And I really like that analogy, actually. I, always, I used to fight against cooking as a metaphor because I always believe metaphors should match people's experiences and not everybody... Not everybody is a cook or does cook. And I think you, it does, a metaphor doesn't always spark interest. But I've come to the conclusion, actually, the cooking metaphor is, is a pretty good one because even if not everybody does cook, everyone has seen people cook typically and they certainly know how cooking happens. Whereas many of the metaphors... We, we, yeah, go I, on. I think you're right. I, well, and I actually realise I made a mistake because we're talking about... When you're talking about professionals, you talk about chefs right? Everybody's a cook, but not a chef. So everybody cooks, but they don't necessarily have the knowledge about those tools, techniques, mm. and ingredients. Still, they're able to do relatively okay cooking and, a healthy and meal. They know, and they know also that, they, that there is more they could do with this particular set of tools. Exactly. They can yeah. get creative. Miriam, can you give me an example of doing this at work and an example of how we could do it better and how would we do it better okay so i think there are a lot of things that we can do better throughout the whole learning experience design process all the way from the very start learner research stakeholder analysis needs analysis all that stuff all the way through measurements i think the whole spectrum can be improved upon i have one example that i would like to discuss which is how to design learning experiences for complex skills just because i feel that we don't talk enough about it, how, how to design for them, and also that we don't always realize we're dealing with complex skills and therefore our designs aren't effective. So it's just one example that I think is important, especially when you design for knowledge workers. Can you say complex skills? Can you say more about what you think a complex or how you would define a complex skill? 
Yeah, so kind of in an abstract way, it is skill. There are skills that consist of many elements that interact with one another. So that's still that bit like nebulous, right? So it's <laughs> it's kind of like the whole is more than the sum of its parts. Okay. Um, so for example, a simple example, when you have to translate words from, let's say, English to Italian, that's not necessarily easy, but it's not complex because you're just dealing with the word element so just yeah. one element and you know you do one thing at a time yeah. however when you translate a text for example that's where things start to interact because you need to conjugate if i'm pronouncing that for correctly verbs you need to deal with all the the grammar stuff but also with the semantics you need to get across the meaning of the yes. original author so that's where a lot of different elements are starting to interact and you have to as the translator do many things at the same time hmm. in your brain. Yeah. So that's what makes it complex. Uh, okay, so that's a good example. And talk about the learning experience design or, or designing uh, whatever in the area of complex skills. What do we get wrong with that? I, I can try to give an example from my own practice. I try to keep okay. it short because it's always difficult to explain something difficult briefly. So, for example, um, I work in a team that's responsible for learning around emerging technologies, such as blockchain. What it means is that people need to learn about the technology itself, but they also need to learn about how to have different conversations with their clients and how to sell different right. types of solutions. So, so in the case of blockchain... This is complex, right? There's, there's a lot going on there. There's a lot going on. The whole process is different. It's no longer about one client. It's about ecosystems. So okay. long story short, there's a lot going on. So what you need to do is you need to think about these people at work. What do they actually do when interacting with their clients? So uh, let's say you take an authentic task as having an initial meeting with a client. How are you going to spot opportunities? How are you going to explain to them why it is an opportunity? How are you going to make a suggestion on what to do next? So what you can do as a learning experience designer is, or what I usually do, you can work with an expert, like a fairly senior, like a real expert, and you let them talk through a real case study, like a scenario. So they explain step by step, not just what they do, but also why they do it right so you need you know you need to use like deep interview techniques to really help them to think out loud because they think everything is easy and it's not yeah. so what that does is you end up with what we call a worked out example that explains really step by step what and why what how and why i should say and not just that the the layer that you have or the wrapper that you have to use as well is you design template job aids any type of scaffolding that mm -hmm. people can use to do these things themselves. So then the next step, I'll try to keep this brief, but the <laughs> next step is that this expert will explain this worked out, use this worked out example with the learners. So they will explain it to them, walk them through step by step. That means you ground the learners in a really strong, real example. And then because you give them the templates that are tied to that example, and then, you know, they start to practice themselves, they have this grounding. And then you, you start with a lot of support. For example, you give them like only gaps to fill in and you give them the templates to do it. And slowly you take away all that, sure. that scaffolding. Classic, classic scaffolding. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So the reason why we get it wrong is because usually we, we do all these things separately. Oh, we teach you about the technology. We teach you about how to spot opportunities. 
we teach you about how to explain solutions to clients. Yeah. What this means is that people are not able to integrate that in their work. They develop the skills in a fragmented, decomposed manner. And, and as you said, a complex skill is greater than the sum of its parts. So yeah. that means they're not getting the full value out of it. Like it, you might metaphorically say in the gym, if you do weights on a machine, you're safer, but you are not developing as well as you could do physically as if you're using free weights because that actually uses a more subtle combination of, of your muscles in your body or indeed the cooking metaphor again there's no point learning how to fry chicken in one week and then learn how to add tarragon to your butter the next week you should do it all together so i i totally get this so we've got we've got complex skills and you, what you're talking about here is some of the classic stuff in learning give people scaffolding give them what I would call controlled and then freer practice, uh, and but but do it by capturing the content in the first place using what you call deep interviewing, really skilled interviewing techniques to really tease the true expertise out of the expert, if that makes sense. Yeah, so the key term I think there was the worked out example. Yeah. Because that's just backed up by a ton of research that it's one of the most effective ways of of teaching complex skills and when we talked about this and you we, we beforehand and actually we have had many conversations in in different bars in hotels at conferences in different parts of the world we, we always seem to come back to the same point which is this your back your background of scientific rigor and saying the research shows this donald but people aren't doing it she's passionate about the science aren't you yes Good practice is not spread widely enough. That's one of your big things. Like this idea that we know that worked out examples are a great way of teaching complex skills, but we don't do it. Why don't we understand the science more? Why don't we spread good practice and share it more? Oh, I, I think there are multiple reasons. I think one of the reasons is that people just learning, I think, is a typical field where people have a tendency to go with their intuition, like what they believe to be true you know we we deal a lot with opinions everybody's a learner every so everybody experience has experienced learning in one way or the other that's why yeah we're kind of stuck in tendency to go with opinions intuitions and beliefs so i think that's that's one reason i think another reason is and that might probably relate to the first one i feel that we're kind of stuck in what i call high level knowledge level so in dutch we say like uh, something around we've heard the bell ring but we don't know where the clapper hangs <laughs> so, so it means kind of like knowing a little is a dangerous thing. Yeah, kind of a, li thing, a little knowledge, know? a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. A uh, little knowledge is thank you. Yes. Could you say in Dutch for us? I'm sure it sounds fantastic in Dutch. Go on. The clock will allow the man niet weten waar de klepel hangt. I love it. Great. Okay. So we've all learned something new today. And we all know that feeling, a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. And people run with their intuition. And the result is we have lots of people doing different things in different places. Confidence is the right thing because their intuition tells them so. And when good practice does spring up, it's not differentiated from other people's work because everyone's doing their own thing. And there seems to be not enough of a, of, of a common sense that we need to look at what really works in other people's practice. Yeah, and I was thinking about uh, what I find interesting is there seemed to be this kind of like, I don't know if it's a 
contradictory thing. I wasn't, I wasn't sure. But what I see is that in one way, we, we seem to want like quick fixes, right? Give me one cheater checklist. What do I need to do? Like easy, the low hanging fruit. Like, what do I need to do? I need to do something yeah. quick. Yeah. We all know that everything we do, nothing is straightforward. It's a messy, complex field. Yes, A, we ask for quick fixes, which is not realistic. B, we kind of dismiss the evidence as in, well, our field is really complex and messy. And then we expect, we kind of say we don't, we can't use the evidence because it's done in a lab or it's done in a school or it's done in whatever different context. Well, well, that's not the point. The point is look at the evidence, see how you can use it, compare it to your context, see how it's applicable, try it out, experiment, measure, improve, and go on. So Miriam, you've got a master's in the learning sciences. And to that extent, you're not representative of the profession as a whole. I have to say, I think I wish you were. I think if we were all prepared to be as rigorous and scientifically demanding as you were, things would be different. Okay, so we're not prepared to look at the scientific evidence for whatever reason, or we dismiss it. And yet we know that learning is one of the most complex and multifaceted of of human behaviours. It's not one process, it's a whole mixture of processes. Let's not leave people who might be on their tube journey at the moment, maybe they're taking a bus across, I don't know, San Francisco, or perhaps they're on the ground at a an exotic airport, listening to this podcast, flying somewhere, let's not leave them downhearted. What can we do about it, Miriam? How can we get people to feel better? Okay, well, so I, I think we, we first thing is, I don't think people should feel bad for not digging through the scientific research. I mean, we can't expect everybody to do that. Some true, people true. Maybe, maybe don't have an academic background, they might not have an interest. You know, that that's just not to be expected but i mean there are people who who do this who who like this right and who who not just dig through the research they also translate it for us practitioners to use people like will tolheimer patty yeah. shank jane bozar julie dirksen clark quinn myself you know the list goes on so using these people and learn from them like i would highly recommend and everybody can do that another thing that i think people can do is just be more critical when they read watch or hear something you know take some time to ask critical questions and there are simple things to look at like what references does somebody use Uh, are the claims very strong is the language that somebody uses really emotional so that you need to be you know like skeptical like right away like whoa this is very black and white or very strong so in we discussed that in a book extensively Mm -hmm. like techniques that you can use to kind of judge uh what you're reading. So I think that's that's definitely something that everybody can do. What about the mindset? And I put myself in this category, I think everybody does it. The mindset that says, hold on a second, I need to engage those those skills. I need to be critical now. It's very easy, isn't it, to get sucked into following the evidence you like because you agree with it and not being critical about it. We all do it. I do it. Yes. How do we? How do we give ourselves a wake-up call? So, uh, that's a difficult one, right? Because well, one is to to really ask yourself, like, is this just because I like to believe this, or because it makes sense to me, or because the evidence is really strong? And we all have biases, right? There's no way to 
to not have them. What, what I try to do is I try to connect with people as well who, who don't agree with me, mm. who take a, a completely different approach, who have look at completely different types of scientific research. One, one reason is I can't follow, you know, you can't go through all the research. Yeah. It's impossible. Yeah. So you just, I think, need to have a, a pool of people in your network who have a wide variety of approaches um, so that you're challenged in your thinking. Uh, sometimes that can be extremely irritating, especially when they're right oh, and yes. wrong. But, yes. uh, but you have to, one has to live <laughs> with it. Now, but in terms, in terms of a mental trick, actually, I do the same thing. And my mental trick is, uh, let's say I follow a bloke called I know. Uh, Bob Archer, made up name. If there is a Bob Archer listening to this podcast, uh, come and see me. Uh, I'll buy you a drink when we meet. But let's, I'll follow let's, you. <laughs> <laughs> this, this mythical person called Bob Archer, right? Um, if I'm reading something and I feel myself agreeing with something strongly, I say, I'm going to imagine Bob Archer sitting opposite me and laughing at me for the ridiculously easy way I've fallen into this, this text trap. I need to be more resilient and tackle this text more critically. So I try to, I, I use other people's, if you like, uh, disagreement with me to force myself to disagree with the text I'm reading, if that makes sense. Yes, yes. and I, 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 I have people in my network who do challenge me directly, like on Twitter or whatever, they would just say, are you sure? You sound very sure, but have you looked at mm, mm, this or that yeah, or whatever? Yeah. And I like that. I mean, it's not. It's sometimes like, oh no, no, I have no <laughs> research. But that's how it is, right? It's a good question. Done. It's a good question. Are you sure? I think we should all be asking ourselves that question. Are you sure? All right. So look, we've 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 started off with a very practical look at complex skills and and why what they are and how we can do a better job of helping people learn with complex skills by using evidence sorry by using an evidence-based approach which is the evidence shows that worked case studies worked examples are the best way of doing it and we've talked about how we can be critical with ourselves about it and make sure that we are being smart about our own reading and our own research and personal development do you think everybody can take such an approach in learning and development do you think everybody will take such an approach in learning and development can yes will i can only live in hope <laughs> It's down to all of us to ask ourselves that question, are you sure? Is this why you wrote the book, Miriam, you and Paul? Is that why you wrote this book, Evidence-Informed Learning Design? Is that why you wrote it? Yes. So my passion is to make sure that the foundation of our profession becomes stronger. It's interesting because recently somebody said to me, you come across as somebody who's very rigid and not innovative. <laughs> but I thought it was interesting because to me, it's like I'm so convinced that if you don't get the foundation right, you can change and innovate whatever you want but it's going to fall apart so that's why i'm always so so focused on the on the foundation and the nuance and because i think there, there's still work to be done there before we can go on to to me that is the innovation the innovation is to build the foundations properly rather than trying to build our castle on sand you might say exactly yes what's the what should we be looking at what sort of sciences should we be looking at in this field yeah so i i call it the learning sciences because well that's what it is but the learning sciences are made up of you know multiple sciences like cognitive sciences educational psychology behavioral sciences so there's just a, there's a learning technology strand learning analytics so uh, it's a whole suite of sciences that inform learning the learning sciences my mother and my sister were both educational psychologists my father and my brother both chemical engineers so I, 
come from quite a scientific slash educational background myself. It's certainly something we're talking about a lot at home. And yeah, I like this term, Miriam, learning sciences, because that plural, I think, is an alert to the fact that there's a lot of stuff we have to look at. Absolutely. Yes. Miriam, we end all interviews with two standard questions. What do you wish you'd known when you'd started in learning and development? I never know what to call it, but stakeholder stuff, stakeholder <laughs> management, stakeholder relationship building stakeholder influencing there was nothing like that in my studies um because your studies weren't about how to influence people it's about how people learn exactly and how to design for that but i was very naive when i started well i you know i was an experienced worker as in i i had had a previous career which had stakeholders as well but again the learning the learning space is really interesting that way because i never expected that when I would make a suggestion that people would just not believe me and just come back with no but my (laughs) best friend really (laughs) likes to do this so we should do it that way but at the same time I mean that's only one part of it right the other part that I that I didn't that I wish I had known was the whole importance of listening and the importance of really understanding the the business when you work in an organization because only then you know you know what what they need and it's it's stakeholders to me when i say stakeholders that includes learners sure so it's it's it goes both ways well as always i totally get it and i think to be fair in learning development we have probably given ourselves suddenly in a matter of a few years way more to do than we ever had to do in the past because in the past I, i've lived through this period you produced an annual course schedule and that was it suddenly that's gone and there's a whole bunch of other stuff you have to do as well you have to do the courses too but there's all this other stuff as well yeah and you have to even be be able to tell stakeholders that 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 training or any other learning experience is not the answer yeah right because sometimes they default to the learning and development space and you're like well actually go to marketing or so or fire fire somebody or hire somebody yeah or check yeah for me for me the the usual answer to um sorry miriam no i was just thinking there's there's another thing that i that i realized quickly as well is that your clients don't care about learning right (laughs) so so i have my whole own language around learning but I really have, and, and still, I have to teach myself to not use that language with my clients. So I'm, I shouldn't say, like, let's, you know, we need to use space learning because research yeah, shows or, blah, blah, or blah. Or scaffolding or um, yeah. controlled practice. Exactly. So to translate that into their language is another skill that we need to have, right? And I, I liked your point about the listening as well. I, I, I don't think only people are bad listeners, but I think it's a skill that is really important generally in life. And it's particularly important as we make this transition to a more complex, richer, more valuable L&D. Okay, so that's where we are. That's where we are. What you'd wish you'd known when you started today, Miriam. What are you curious about right now in workplace learning? Yeah, so one of the things I'm going to uh, dive into more is how we can support people in becoming better at self-directed and self-regulated learning. That's, mm. that's what I'm really curious about at the moment. Like, what does it take? How can we help people to get better at driving their own learning? I think it's a huge question. It is. That- There's a lot of evidence, though. <laughs> about how it works and how it doesn't work are you sure that's the question i have to ask (laughs) you sound very sure of yourself it's a huge question and i think that for me it's one of the areas where lnd can provide most value get people curious and starting themselves up my guess is you're working against probably a lifetime of conditioning up to that point 
where people have largely been told very often through the educational system that they this isn't for them and i find that very depressing yeah there's kind of like a paradox there right it's people are good at it who take like a strong approach to, to driving their own learning they are usually already highly knowledgeable and, and strong performers and the people who do need the most supports are usually not not that great at it so it's a bit of a paradox Miriam, let's end the podcast on an upbeat note your book is coming out in february 2020 it's evidence-informed learning design with Paul Kirshner, published by Kogan Page. You mentioned a whole bunch of other things in the course of, obviously we'll put the link in uh, to the book in the show notes. We'll also put in the link to three-star learning experiences. You mentioned Will Talheimer, Julie Dirksen, Clark Quinn, Patty Shank and Jen Bozarth. We'll find links for all of those to go into the show notes. Is there any other top resource that you think people should be tapping into to do a good job in learning? I don't even know where to start. There are so many good resources. Like, yes, I forgot to mention um, Connie, Connie Malamad, who does great work. There are so many great books that people should read. To me, the book that I use most is, is 10 Steps to Complex Learning by Jeroen van Marien Boer and, and Paul Kirchner. It's not an easy book. It's more like a book that you need to constantly go back to because it's really, it's quite academic. But when you read it, you realize how many we do know that we don't realize. So to me, that is, that is one of my go-to books. To my shame, it's not on my shelves. I will rectify that by buying it and we'll stick a link to it in the show notes. Miriam Nealon, thank you very much. Looking forward to reading your book when it comes out. Well, thank you for having me. 